tape recorder, which was just so unprofessional. It was just a normal thing that was in my room at university, which played the Smiths or Lloyd Cole or whatever, and there was on a stick and a microphone, and it talked to Brian Clough. Listen to them. They're talking for future generations. They're not just talking for themselves, and they're talking for the care that must be taken of the modern player. If I had to boil it down, I would come down in a lion sense to Brisbane 2001 because the occasion that day was out of this world. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Forward Past podcast. My name is Graham Jenkins and you're about to hear the latest in a series of conversations with the most experienced members of the sports media covering rugby union. The latest industry veteran to join me is Sky Sports commentator Miles Harrison, who took time out of his preparations for the current British and Irish Lions tour of New Zealand to look back on his career and pass on some tips to the next generation of media professionals. I hope you enjoy his insights, and please note that we spoke before the sad passing of former Sky Sports Managing Director Vic Wakeling, who, as you will learn, had a major influence on Miles' career path. Joining me today is the vastly experienced and widely respected commentator Miles Harrison, a key figure in Sky Sports' superb coverage of the sport for over 20 years, and someone who is considered one of the best in the business. Miles is currently gearing up for what I believe will be his sixth Lions tour, where he will once again work alongside his uh, long-time analyst partner, Stuart Barnes. Miles began his commentary career with BBC Radio and since clocked up countless internationals, European and domestic finals, and not to mention the odd Rugby World Cup. And he's kindly agreed to share what he has learned along the way. Hi, Miles, and, and thanks for taking time out. Absolutely no problem, Graham. So, so Miles, where, where did it all begin? What, do you have a first rugby memory or a first journalism memory? What, what came first? Well, I wanted to play... For the Lions, or maybe at Lords with a cricket bat. They were my two greatest sporting lovers, I suppose. I love football as well. Uh, and I think everybody doing my job, you know, Graham, should be thinking along those lines, not least because you sort of understand a little bit more what it takes to be a sports person at the very top level. And I assure you, I got nowhere near that. But I would imagine that I was Gareth Edwards or Barry John in the garden and Alongside that, if I'm going to be absolutely honest, from quite an early age, I was also Bill McLaren because, if truth be known, I admire sports broadcasters, journalists, almost as much as the players themselves. I was fascinated by the playing of sport, yes, but watching and listening to it as well. And I think I grew up in a time where we really went through a a tremendous period of the growth of sports broadcasting. And as an audience, we were all fascinated and captivated by it, just what was possible through the sort of 1970s and 80s as well. And I was pretty well a sport addict. And given the actual sporting talent that I was blessed with, it was just as well I enjoyed watching it, really. <laughs> and at school and at uni, it became apparent that I was not going to trouble the scorers, so I better do something else. And that other thing was always a close second anyway. And I became very single-minded in that desire to become a sports broadcaster. It's all I really wanted to do, having realised that I wasn't going to play the game itself. And, and, so, and so where was that first step taken towards that? Well, I started young. I started in local radio. And I offered out to help out on Saturday afternoons with a radio station in Nottingham, my home city, called Radio Trent 
And I immediately felt the energy and the excitement of what a live sports broadcast was all about. And I was hooked. I really was. And initially, I was just helping out the presenter, just literally running up and down the stairs with what we used to in the old days called the rip and read, the teleprinter. It's amazing that that's the way it was then. But with all the latest sports details from the afternoon coming through in the newsroom on just one teleprinter, it had to be run down to the presenter. But I loved it, and I wanted to progress more and more within that environment. And I knew that I wouldn't be happy unless my career was in this world. And there was a guy there called Brian Tansley, who was the sports editor, sadly no longer with us. He was at Radio Trent at that time, and being in Nottingham in that period was a great time for sport. I was a Forest fan, I was a Nottingham rugby fan, I loved my cricket as well and Nottinghamshire were doing very well in that. So there was a great vibe around the radio station, and Brian was very encouraging, and he was very keen to see this kid go through his dream. And I was so grateful at the time, but even more so now, when you think about the generosity of that kind of person, with someone like me setting out with it all in front of me and a big mountain to climb. And I went to university, continued helping out with Brian and his team during those holiday periods and then I got the idea that just helping out wasn't going to be enough to get me a job I needed to do something more formal so I went on a postgraduate journalism course and getting on that course was the key moment for me because Mm -hmm. it was so competitive it still is now don't get me wrong but there were so few courses then there was City University Cardiff University London College of Printing, and a course down, I think, in Falmouth, down in Cornwall. And I plumped the city, and there were only 12 or 13 places on the broadcasting course, and there were hundreds applying. So you had to find another way to get in as part of the application process. And that's where another Brian came along, a more famous Brian, if you like, Brian Clough, Mm -hmm. who was manager of Nottingham Forest. And I wrote to him, and I said, I'm a fan of your team. Mr. Clough, I'm trying to get on this course. They tell me as part of the interview process that you need to do an interview, a recorded interview. They recommended with an interesting member of your family. But I thought, well, if everybody does that, how boring is that? Especially, no disrespect to my family, but I don't think the stories were going to be great. So I thought, let's just go for the top. Let's just go for Brian Clough. And I couldn't believe it when a nork of my... And my mother answered the phone at home one afternoon. It was Cluffy's secretary, Carol, who rang and said, Mr. Clough would like to see your son to conduct an interview. So it happened during term time, actually. It was a few weeks beyond that during holiday. So term time. I was up in York University. I didn't even have a car at that point. My girlfriend did. She became a wife, and she drove me down uh, one day. And we, well, I met Cluffy. She sat nervously outside in the car park at Nottingham Forest. I had a tape recorder, which was just so unprofessional. It was just a normal thing that was in my room at university, mm. which played the Smiths or Lloyd Cole or whatever. And there was I sticking a microphone in it and talking to Brian Clough. But he gave an absolutely wonderful interview, as he always did. I mean, he never failed in, in giving great product. And I'm convinced, well, I was told that's what got me on the course. And he gave me a leg up. And I never forget that either. I mean, how could you forget that? But the the warmth and uh, just knowing exactly what he was doing and finding time to do that for me when Forrest were obviously one of the top sides in the country uh, 
was something I'll always remember and appreciate. Wow. Did you, did you ever cross paths with him again further down the, the line and, and offer him some thanks? Well, I did, because I, as part of that course, I had an attachment to BBC Radio Nottingham. Mm-hmm. Oh, so uh, Radio uh, Trent was a commercial station at the time? It was, yes. Yeah. Uh, but I wanted to try out the BBC. Everybody was saying BBC is a great place to start if that's going to be your first port of call for employment. And that's exactly how it turned out. So as part of my roles, I, I, I went to be on news and sport, but trying to tie me down to a news desk was impossible. I was constantly gravitating over to the sports desk. Mm. And they sent me out to do an interview down at Nottingham Forest to preview an FA Cup tie. And Cluffy wasn't speaking to anybody at that stage. He put a, a blanket, no talk to any media whatsoever. And I went down there, and I was, I suppose it's youth, isn't it? You're just a bit cheeky. Mm. And I saw him in a corridor, and I said, I know you want me to talk to Nigel, your son, or Neil Webb, or somebody like that. But, Mr. Clough, if you did me this interview, and you remember you got me on the course, yeah. I'm sure it would progress my career, and I'm now going to be looking for a job. And he gave me such a withering look. <laughs> and I thought, oh, dear, I'll put my foot in it this time. And he said, you know what? He says, see me in my office in 10 minutes' time. He did another piece of pure gold. He knew exactly what he was doing. Every word was... Uh, you were living on every word that he was producing in this interview. And I said to him at the end, again, gathered up the strength or the, the cockiness, I suppose, to say, I said, look, I'm going to take this back to BBC Nottingham. We're going to play it out. Can I possibly send it down to Radio Sport in London? And he said, will you not go away, young man? <laughs> and I said, please, it will really help. And he said, oh, go on then. In fact, initially, I think he said no, but then a call came through to the newsroom and the sports editor at Radio Nottingham at the time, a lovely guy, Andy Knowles, said, well, he couldn't believe that I got an interview with him in person foremost. He said, this has got to go to London. And I said, Andy, I don't think he can. He said that uh, he doesn't want it to. But then a call came through and it said that he could go to London. And again, he knew exactly what he was doing. And everybody sat around in London, I was told by Mike Lewis and Bob Shannon, who went on to become my bosses when I joined Radio Sport. Again, major influences in my career, those guys. And they said they sat by the feet listening to this interview, knowing that nobody else could get cluff at that time. It was just one of those moments in my career where it just all came together. I say career, I didn't start it, but it, I was identified at that point as a guy who could maybe just do something a little bit different, and Brian Clough really helped. And so that opened up um, the way for a, a more permanent place at the BBC, was that? Yes, I actually left the course before it had finished because I got a job offer from BBC York, and I went to spend just three months there. It was a great time. I, I thought I'd go for longer than that. I went as there. Well, there was a, a vacancy of sports producer, but because I was so junior or inexperienced, I was appointed as a reporter only, but I wasn't, in fact, the producer. And, and I was right in at the deep end, sort of running this sports desk on a, on a daily basis. But boy, did I learn quickly, and I loved it there. But the manager of Radio York at the time, John Jefferson, moved to become manager of BBC Leeds. And he took me with him. He took a few people that were working at York. He just recently appointed me. And I think he knew there was a vacancy coming up in the sports team there. So I joined BBC Leeds, where I spent some really, really happy times in a wonderful patch 
for sport. The editor at the time was Dave Callahan. You might still know nationally as the voice of Yorkshire cricket on on BBC Sports Extra. And he, again, was a lovely man who had great interest in developing the careers of the young people that worked for him. And on the team with me at BBC Leeds at that time were John Champion and Peter Drury, who went on to become, obviously, renowned football commentators, but also became very close friends of mine. And we often talk about those times still that we had in Leeds and how that particular patch with Leeds United going back into the first division, I had to learn rugby league. I watched it as a kid, but there was no way I was ready to broadcast it. But it was such a part of the station sports output. I had to learn it and I really enjoyed learning it and working with people in rugby league gave me a different dimension on the sport of rugby. Of course, I was fighting the corner of rugby union and I remember doing the county championship final one year, Yorkshire versus Cornwall. That was a great event then and that was live on Leeds and that was a, a great rugby moment for the station to have that live. And cricket too, on the road with the cricket team and that very political world of Yorkshire cricket, mm. very challenging for a young journalist alongside the likes of you know, great written journals like David Hopps, Martin Searby at the time were getting scoops and you had to try and live with that kind of journalistic environment. So it was all developing me as a broadcaster, as a producer, as an organiser on sport and it was just such a great time, it really was. Mm-hmm. And was there a, did a move to London follow? Yes, it did. I moved down to Radio Sport, I applied for a couple of jobs, uh, didn't get them initially, was told that they were looking at other people uh, for those jobs who were a bit further down the line, uh, but I was not to lose uh, any sense of encouragement and one day it would happen. So I think I was really well managed in terms of how my BBC progression was going to uh, take place and it would happen at the right time for me, they said, and it was exactly the right time. So I went down to Radio Sport and again, to use that phrase, had a ball in that environment, surrounded by a group of broadcasters that have gone on to do some really great things. I mean, mention a few of them now, but I'll forget names because there were so many at that time. It's not really fair to pull out one or two, but off the top of my head, Mark Pugach, who else was there? Marcus Buckland, Simon Brotherton, Simon Mann. Rob Hawthorne, Sonny McLaughlin, Nick, of course, Nick Mullins. We were all there at that time. And we've all gone to do slightly different things. And we've all benefited from that environment, late 80s, early 90s with the BBC, both locally and then in the sports room. I, I, the call I, came from Sky in 94, 1994. That was the year when I left the beam. I was going to say, before we move on to, to that particular move, I imagine... You only have a great thing to say about the BBC in terms of its influence of, and its ability to generate great uh, media professionals. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it will always hold a very dear place in my heart, the BBC, because of those formative years, yes, but also because it gave you that opportunity to grow in a terrific environment. It could not be better, really. And, you know, they talk about... Sports teams, say the Lions, they have that look all those years on when they played together. We sort of have that look, all those BBC people around that time when we see each other, a little knowing look to each other that reminds us of the friendship that is everlasting. 
but also reminds her of just how important being together in that team was at that time. Mm-hmm. But knowing how obviously um, influential that period was and how, you know, how much professionally you developed at the BBC, it must have been a tough decision to, to step away? Yes, it was. It really was a tough de- decision, Graham. I, I suppose I knew at the time it was going to be a yes when Sky called. I was at the French Open, and I went all discombobulated that day. In fact, Joanne Watson, the uh, producer, thought I got a bit gaga at the end of the day. My only time I'd ever done a piece, I think it was into Radio 4 News, where I put the microphone down and thought, that actually didn't make sense. <laughs> and Joe looked at me, and you could see that she didn't quite understand what I'd said, but I couldn't say why it hadn't made sense, because an hour beforehand, Vic Wakeling had given me the call to say, I want you to do, or be the commentator for me on Sky's coverage of rugby, which, as you know, was about to start in 1994, the first ever time that live club rugby was going to be on television. And he based that decision, I think he knew the work I'd been doing because he's a big football fan and he used to listen to football on Five Live, Uh, he used to commentate on football. But also, he'd been driving along listening to that year's Calcutta Cup match at Murrayfield. And I'd been co-commentating with Ian Robertson, as was part of my role then. And he said that, as he turned the radio off, he decided who he wanted to do that, his rugby, on the basis, probably, of that call. He just thought that I was the man. So it's lovely to hear somebody ring up and say those things but mm. I had so much more to do and I told this to Vic at the time was unfinished business at the Bean I wanted to do some football world cups I wanted to go to the Olympics of course all the rugby things take as red I wanted to do those as well mm. but I wanted to do so much beyond that I was enjoying doing Wimbledon but I loved doing the French and the US Open and all the, all the slams were just great fun I didn't feel I'd reached the end of the road whatsoever with the Bean but mm. I just knew that here was an opportunity which was just standing out, blazing at me, saying, you've got to come and take this opportunity because it was going to be the chance to be part of something so new, so vibrant. And immediately when I walked through the doors at Sky and I talked to Vic about the job and what was on offer, I just knew it was going to be a thrilling environment to be in. Mm -hmm. And this organisation were going to break moulds left, right and centre. They were always going to be a step ahead of the game. You could tell the type of people they were employing, the type of atmosphere that was within the old Sky office then as it was now, just a very ordinary, almost like plain hangar, if you like, in the the edge of uh, Heathrow in Isleworth. And it's grown into this great organisation that it is now, and it is still, in my view, if I may say, always a step ahead of the game, always innovating, still setting the standards. Mm-hmm. And it's been such a pleasure to be part of that journey. It really has. I can't say how much that has been just so, as I say, thrilling. Thrilling place to start and still a thrilling place to be. Mm-hmm. Had you done TV work at the Beeb and, and was that a daunting or easy transition to make from radio into TV? I'd done no TV commentary. I'd done TV reporting, mainly in Leeds, with uh, BBC there. 
But no one done nothing on the commentary front. It had all been radio. And of course, there is a big difference between radio and television commentary, as you know. And it took a while. It honestly took a while. And I think those people who watch or watch those games at the time and said, look, there's a transition happening here and we have to let it happen. And I'm very grateful for those who did because it takes a while to learn the craft. Mm-hmm. On radio, it is about you, the microphone, in conjunction with the producer, creating this picture. Quite obviously, the picture is all there on television. You are much more constrained, therefore, you have to say much less, and you have to make sure that, by and large, you are adding to that picture, and in doing so, helping navigate the story of the match for the viewer. You're going hand in hand with the viewer. You're sort of steering yourself through it journalistically. Mm-hmm. So there's a big difference, and it takes a while. And if I'm going to be honest, I think it was probably Lions 97, which for me felt like a bit of a breakthrough moment anyway. Yeah. In terms of the reaction surrounding the build-up to the tour and the broadcast, and we knew how it was being watched by how many people. And everybody seemed to be buying into that Lions tour as part of that lovely combination of the old-style amateur game and the new professional era, which kicked off in 95. And we were all part of broadcasting that story. And I think it really helped me develop as a broadcaster. The games were coming thick and fast. They were all so important, all so massive. And, of course, it was a very positive story to be able to report and commentate on as well. Mm-hmm. And I think also... That, sorry, sorry, go No, ahead. please carry on, carry on. Well, I was going to say, I think also you realise in television that you're just a very small part of a massive operation massive financial commitment and I really like that in it together feel more and more there is a difference the simplicity of radio to this big giant animal that is television Mm. and it takes a bit of getting used to but as soon as you buy into the fact that everybody on site whatever your role within this operation on outside broadcast day is as vital as the next person. It's really quite an intoxicating environment to be in. It gives the whole thing a a massive energy, knowing that everybody is totally reliant on everybody else. If one thing falls down, the whole thing fails. Mm. And it gives you this match day adrenaline rush. And if that sounds familiar to ex-sportsmen who go on to be part of TV, or indeed radio to be part of the media in broadcasting their sport, I think they enjoy that rush because it's not replicating the game. It's a long way from playing it, don't get me wrong. But it gives a little bit of it. And that's why I'm sure so many ex-sportsmen and sportswomen enjoy broadcasting after they finish playing. Mm -hmm. Talking of uh, on that very very point, you're part of a... A famous partnership, obviously, with with Stuart. Um, what what were the origins of that uh, working relationship, and and how did you guys click, or did you know each other beforehand? <laughs> well, the first time we met, and by the way, we're not married. I think some people think we're married. <laughs> uh, I suppose it's become a working marriage in, in that respect. But I first met him when he was still playing 
and it was up in Gateshead for, it was England B in those days as the junior side to the main England side, before England A or even well, long before the Saxons was established, but England B played New Zealand at Gateshead in the early 90s. And Barnsley had a good game, and the call from Broadcasting House was for me to get an interview with him after the match. And he kept me waiting. He was known as a prickly so-and-so then. I mean, everybody knew, but you knew he was good copy. He was going to give you a good interview. It was always worth the wait. And this is the first time that I'd ever been in the, the situation of having a chance to talk to him. And eventually he came out of the changing room with his towel wrapped round his midriff. And my first thought, to be honest, was, God, I wish he had a bigger towel <laughs> to cover that torso. <laughs> but we sort of clicked straight away in as much that I threw a few in there just to get him going, because you knew he'd respond in the interview. And he liked it, and we jousted a bit. And at the end of it, I knew that I got a good piece to send back down to London, and I think he quite enjoyed it. And we still talk about this interview every now and again. Obviously, this is the first time we met, so we, we mentioned it in conversation to people on a number of occasions. And I think we both know that we, at that point, even though we didn't know each other at all, knew that if we did meet in a working way, with hindsight, that we'd probably get on. And we do. We come at life from very different angles, don't get me wrong, but we're totally different animals in many respects. But maybe that's why it's sort of worked in the commentary box over the years. And I think from Barzi's point of view, when I started working with him, I knew that his future would be in the comms box because you want his opinions, you want him to express those thoughts. Now, you may not always agree with them, but you know that he has those opinions built on solid foundations and knowledge and that he's going to commit to those. And I think, as a broadcaster, that is a very potent weapon to have in your armory. Mm -hmm. And we've got a lot of flying miles together in the commentary box now. And I think when you've got that as well, that can take you into areas in the broadcast where it can really, really click. Mm -hmm. Was Vic Wakeling aware of that relationship between you two when he put you together, or how did, how, how did that actually come about? Well, we weren't put together initially. So, no, in that respect, Barnsley, if you remember, was the presenter in the very first years of Sky Sports Rugby. Mm -hmm. And my commentary partner was Jamie Salmon, the former England and All Black. Right. So we weren't a commentary team. We commentated for the first time at the Hong Kong Sevens in 96, I think it was. And on the back of that, we commentated on... South Africa versus New Zealand, which we did off Tube, very famous series, where New Zealand went to South Africa and won that series, full of brilliant players, one of the great series that mm -hmm. anybody with knowledge of rugby history will know all about. And we did that off Tube. Actually, we went next door after one of the test matches and we had a pint in one of the pubs close to, to Sky HQ. And the guy behind the bar couldn't believe that we were having a party, thought we'd been out in South Africa. But that was the start of our 15-a-side commentary partnership, and on the basis of those which games which presumably went pretty well as a combo, Sky decided to stay with it. Mm -hmm. you, you mentioned you clocked up some air miles together. Do you have a sort of natural rhythm now? You sort of understand when Stuart has something to say or... You know when to leave room for him to say something? Yes, I think we've 
always sort of had that. As I say, it gets better in time, mm. o- over time. But <laughs> there are no real rules as far as I'm concerned. I'm sure as far as Stuart's concerned or whoever else I work with in the commentary box. And I certainly make that point if I'm working with new people that there's going to be no markings down on the floor where this bit belongs to me and that bit belongs to you because it doesn't sound natural. Mm. And the most effective sports broadcast any kind of broadcasting is natural broadcasting where it just comes from the heart and it feels right obviously i have a certain role where live play is predominantly me certainly when it gets towards the try line and those scoring moments that should belong to what we call the lead commentator having said that the way the game has evolved now we have a lot of phase play so for me to keep on talking through 2025 phases would sound ridiculous and it wouldn't be right anyway, because there will be chances there for the co-com or co-coms, as we often have the case now, it's three and not two, to come in and make their analytical and tactical points. When the ball goes out, then predominantly that belongs to the analyst, the expert, to be able to expand on that, on his point and uh, develop it until the ball goes back into play. But uh, as I say, I don't think there should be any set rules. But also going back to the start of Sky, I think we made a bit of an impact, if I dare say, not just on rugby, but across the board of whatever sport we were covering, because certainly the approach at Sky was to develop the role of the analyst and make it feel much more 50-50, where you have the professional broadcaster, non-player who's... Developed his skills or her skills within the broadcasting world mm-hmm. alongside the ex-player who was not there just to state the obvious. And I think when we look back at the analyst in those years preceding that period when Sky came onto the scene, I think there was a lot of obvious being stated and Sky wanted the co-commentator, the ex-player, to really tell us what was happening out there. And I think we've seen that grown across the board in all sports that are covered by all networks now, the growth of the COCOM, and rightly so, because they just take you into areas where, as a non-player, you just wouldn't be able to go. Mm -hmm. Uh, Miles, we're speaking, um, for for the listeners' benefit, we're speaking in Champions Cup final week. I'm just wondering if you could use that as an example of, to offer an insight into how you prepare for a game, in terms of day-to-day and what notes you're making, which people you're talking to sort of thing. Shall we from match day? Mm-hmm. Because obviously you're on site that day and you are totally absorbed in the event itself. So I don't like to leave too much work until match day itself. Maybe an hour or so in the morning in the hotel to get your head around the game, to get you in the zone, to make you start to think about the players, you run through the numbers, the names in your head, you visualise exactly how they look, not just their faces, importantly, body shape, how they will look when they're running away from you if you just can't quite see the number, all of those things. And maybe just one or two notes to make that I leave until that last morning to get my head in the right place. Match day minus one, I will be flying up to Edinburgh on the red eye tomorrow in time to see the two captains' runs, Saracens and Clement Laverne, and also their news conferences, which will happen around 
those two captains' runs. And I think they're very important moments for a commentator, certainly in a big game, because, again, you just might detect a change in hairstyle or look of a player. In fact, I was at Saracens earlier in the week, went down to see them train and noticed that Petrus Duplessis, I'd seen it on screen watching the Wasp game at the weekend, watching it back, but I hadn't seen him live and it is very, very blonde, that hair. He's, he's, <laughs> he's bleached the life out of it. And it would have maybe taken me a little bit by surprise, especially as the blonde Vincent Cock is also in the uh, Saracens front row ranks, same position. So that was worth going just for that one little moment mm-hmm. to see Petrus's hair. It, it's very strange world which I live in. <laughs> and a strange job at times. So match day minus one is Captain Drums and also completing the commentary chart. You know the kind of thing. Mm. Bill McLaren was best in the business at it, how he did that so thoroughly and so neatly, I'll never know, because I'm afraid my handwriting resembles that of the GP. It is absolutely appalling. So that has an added benefit, because if I write down anything a little bit personal about how a player looks, they can't read it anyway. They have to see my commentary chart. But you have, a, well, I have, my method is to have a commentary chart on one a four size on one side of my clipboard. On the other side, I make notes, which I scribble down throughout the week and then pull together at the end of the week on editorial lines, stories surrounding the match, history, facts and figures that might be relevant, relevant especially to a final. Uh, what else would go in there? Uh, you know, the kind of thing. Just to be on top of the story itself. And those notes need to be relevant to that week, not just to the match, but to that week. I'm not one for peddling out irrelevant stats or irrelevant facts that the viewer would say, oh, hang on, that has absolutely nothing to do with what we're watching or being involved in. Now, look, I'm not saying I get it right all the time, but at least I try to set out to have my editorial notes to be almost exclusively pertinent and relevant. And that takes time, obviously, to to gather those thoughts. You know what it's like when you're writing a story. You just don't sit down and write away. You have to go through that planning process. And as I say, earlier in the week, I go to training if it's relevant or appropriate. Uh, I went down to Saracens on Tuesday, always very grateful for the time that clubs give to me in that respect. I so appreciate it. I couldn't do my job without it. And also... Another major part of my job, aside from, say, planning the week after next, on a travel sense and linking with uh, the travel team at Sky and all of those admin bits, which actually take an awful lot of time and thought, it's watching games. Mm. Watch, watch and watch again. Everything that you're involved in in terms of the tournaments that I cover, that's pretty obvious, but also the tournaments that you don't cover, so you don't lose touch with those lines. And that's an awful lot of rugby. It mm-hmm. really is. Do you, so, go on. I was going to say, do you give any thought at all to to scripting what you know will be a major historical moment if a certain team wins or if it's a Lions series victory? Or do you let the game build and and let those words come to you at that moment? The latter, Graham, mm-hmm. although to say... Well, when it comes to scripting, the latter, because you don't script anything, mm-hmm. and I'll explain why in a second, but in terms of giving it thought, yes, you do, because it would be wrong not to. There will be a trophy lift that will be handed back to commentary at the weekend, 
be it Saracens or Clermont, and it would be wrong not to have thought through the appropriate kind of thing to say at that time. It would be remiss journalistically. Mm -hmm. So, yes, you'll find me or my wife will hear me in the shower, not singing, but sometimes running through... Uh, terrible thing to admit, isn't it, really? But running through various things that I might say in the commentary that weekend, but they would never be scripted because the viewer would immediately suss that as being phony. I would know it was phony, so it wouldn't be coming from the heart. Mm. And I think if you ask anybody who does my job what the best commentary line is ever or the best ever piece of sports commentary... Nine times out of ten, people like me are going to say, Kenneth Wilson, 1966, World Cup final. Just happened to be the most famous sporting moment in the history of our country. But it was also the best piece of commentary. And it was the best because how could you script that? Kenneth Wilsonholm did not know that people would be on the pitch thinking it was all over. Mm. He did not know that Jeff Hurst would be about to bang it in to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final. Dream of scoring a hat-trick in a World Cup final. But in your wildest dream, even Jeff Hurst wouldn't have had that kind of dream. And his line absolutely befitted the moment in an almost poetic way. Talking of poetry, another great commentator, John Arlott. Mm. We'd all probably argue the greatest poet at the microphone, but he didn't write that poetry down. It just came to him. It was natural. Mm. And the best broadcasters are natural. So no, not scripted. Yes, sometimes thought through because it gives you a little bit of an idea. But if you stick to it too much, if you have those thoughts too at the front of your mind, then believe me, you are not going to take note and be relevant to the story that is happening in front of you. And part of my preparation, I should have said, on match day minus one or two, is to plot that handover from presenter to kickoff because I think that's something you can write down not necessarily a script because it has to be in chatty form of course it does mm-hmm. I'm just reading from written word but journalistically again it would be remiss of me not to have gathered or thought about the story the way in which I have and then not give some kind of guidance to the story pre-match for a start the director and the producer are going to want to know what I say at that point because it has to link with their pictures But it's 50-50 because I have to look at their pictures. And as soon as I start to assume too much or imagine things that I think were going to happen, that's when this job bites you on the bum. Mm -hmm. Because you do not take note of what's happening out there. You don't look at the shots. You don't look at who's on camera. You don't look at the reaction of the players. Especially come full time in a final when you just don't know how anybody's going to react. You have to be very much on top of what you see and talking about that, not what you think you should be seeing at that point. Mm-hmm. You, you spoke, obviously, how important relationships with clubs and how helpful they can be. I'm wondering, have you ever had call to, to, to speak to referees or officials to, to sort of get an understanding of their handling of the game? Is, 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 has that ever occurred? Absolutely. Vital part of the job. I love it when... I'm sat next to a referee on a flight to or from a game. Maybe they don't like it so much. But <laughs> it's a chance to have a conversation. If you don't get those conversations, then you make time to uh, have those conversations elsewhere with referees. And they're always so happy to help because they want 
commentators on the sport to understand what they're doing. I think from my point of view, it's also vital to judge how they are officiating at the time in terms of where they're putting emphasis. Because we use the referee's mic so much. It's such a great tool to have now. And knowing when to shut up and leave the referee to explain, and they are absolutely brilliant at explaining the decisions, considering they're out there with hardly any air in their lungs trying to keep up with play and watch so much happen out there. I mean, such admiration for referees and what they do in the modern game, certainly all the way through the game, but certainly in the modern game, the pace in which it's played. So to understand where they're at, it's vital to have that open line of communication with the referee. You mentioned coaches or having open line of communication there, that I think is perhaps most vital because you have to earn their trust to be able to be part of their office to go and watch teams train. And you see things that you know have to stay private and that is so much part of my job, having that confidence to keep information to yourself. I can be part of a training session that has been closed down but I'm still allowed to stay on because they recognise that part of my job is to be able to understand what the club is doing and also help with recognition beyond, say, the 10, 15 minutes that you're allowed at the top of the training session for open access. Mm. And if I had one story which was a moment in my career where I knew I cracked it in terms of trust, I always quote Marseille in 2007 when I was working on the World Cup. And I was assigned to do the England-Australia quarter-final. And I went to the Australian captain's run the day before that match. And there I was, absolutely neutral. Believe you me, you couldn't do this job unless you were neutral. I'm trained neutral. I favour no side. I favour the game. That is just the way you have to be. But I'm still an Englishman, and I'm still there pitch side as Australia goes through their final plays. The session is closed down by John Connolly and his coaching team. The media leave, I'm allowed to stay. And I thought at that moment, you really have cracked it in terms of trust. John came over, had a chat with me. He knew, had seen the closed session. He said, where are you going next? I said, well, I'm going back to the England Hotel for the news conference. He even knew I was going there, but he knew I wouldn't say anything because it's more than my job is worth for a start, but you just wouldn't ethically. And to have that kind of access, that kind of trust, it's... It's vital. And also, the stories and the facts that the coaches give you, the overview stuff, is vital as well. It just gives you that insight. It doesn't have to be much, but just enough to understand where they are at. And it means you can report the story truthfully and accurately, mm -hmm. which is what a journalist should be looking to do. Mm -hmm. you, you recall um, one, obviously, moment from your career that stuck out there with John Connolly. Um, I'm wondering... Is it possible with so much experience, so many games, to, to pick out one or two? And I'm also interested to know, is, are there still moments you pinch yourself when you realise your sporting history, is, major sporting history is happening before you and, and you are there as part of it and having to report it? I pinch myself every week, Graham, is the honest answer, because I still can't quite believe that I have spent a career doing this week in, week out, enjoying the game I love, surrounded by people, uh, top people. I'm so glad that I got rugby from a very young age, so it was in the blood. I, I like what I saw. I, I'm sure I wouldn't know the word for this at the time, but I like the ethos of the game. Even as a young person, that was very much part of the attraction to the sport. And to be part of that as your career, 
has been stunning, really. And you do have to pinch yourself. And it's not just for the big moments. It's not just for the historical games. And they do make you sort of shiver up the spine and the hair stand on end. Of course they do. And in many ways, it's the reason why we do the job is to be there at those history-making moments. But I'd like to think I get as excited and as enthusiastic about driving or flying to any game, wherever I am sent, I will think that is the centre of my world and how lucky I am to be part of broadcasting that event to an audience watching at home or in the pub, to be part of that process and talking about people I admire so much and like so much. But equally, that doesn't mean to say that the broadcast itself should not have at its heart journalistic principles. It shouldn't be a, a saccharine sort of loving with those that play the game. We are broadcasting for the viewers and that point has to be remembered as well. But if you get the kind of access, if you're surrounded by the kind of people and you draw the right lines journalistically, then you know what side of the line to stay on as a broadcaster. And I hope I have done over the years. I hope I've not strayed into areas where players or coaches watching would say he's got no right to talk about that and an alarm bell goes off in my head at those moments and that's the time to pull back and let the COCOM come in and also it's only right to remember at those moments as well just how if the COCOM says something that you think the person in the stand paying good money or the person back home paying good money to watch wants asking or the other point of view needs putting playing devil's advocate journalistically is also part of my role it's not necessarily my view that I'm putting over but if Barnsley say or one of my other co-commentators says something and something goes off in my head and I think well that's very fair view to have and I'm glad they put it strongly but there is another side to this it's also up to me somewhere within that commentary. It's really quite difficult sometimes when the game is moving at such a pace. But within that commentary, it's important for me to somehow get the other side across so it all feels fair as if all bases have been covered journalistically. Mm-hmm. And, and, and particular games that stick out for you? Is there that immediately, immediately spring to mind? Yeah, I sort of avoided that, didn't I? <laughs> Picking up single games. It, it is so difficult, Graham, when you've been in so many top games you mentioned in the introduction to this piece about how many finals I've been to and Lions Tours 6 and all those other tours I think it's 20 odd tours now I've been on so that's a lot of great rugby so to pick out is really difficult but if I had to boil it down I would come down in a lion sense to Brisbane 2001 because the occasion that day was out of this world And the scene at the Gabba, to be so shrouded and covered in red, was something else. It was new. Mm -hmm. Now, the Lions fans had gone out in number to South Africa in 97. It was the breakthrough tour in many ways in terms of a large travelling contingent. But because 97 had gone so well on and off the field, there was a real thirst and desire for 2001, if you remember. And to have so many Lions fans out there and to see the Lions play as well as they did that day, I still don't think I've seen a Northern Hemisphere team play better against a Southern Hemisphere side than the Lions did on that day. 
it will always stick out. And from a club point of view, and this colour red is a, a regular theme, because the one I would pick out would be Munster Beer Ritz in 2006. Mm-hmm. Because again, on that day, everything, simply everything at the Millennium Stadium, as it was called then, was covered in red. It was most unbelievable and unusual sight. I don't think we'd ever seen anything quite like it in terms of a capacity, that kind of number of people in one ground. Of course, Beerit's colours were red as well, which didn't help. But there weren't many Beerit's fans in that stadium that day, as we know. And I remember going to bed that night, and I could still, when I shut my eyes, I could just see red. It had imprinted (laughs) on the back of my eye. And because of the Munster story, and we all knew it, we all bought into it, and to have the end that it had... It was something very special, and it was a moment for club rugby. Like the Munster Wasp semi-final was a few years before, again, helped by the great atmosphere supplied by those famous fans. So, yeah, you could see club rugby was becoming massive, in many ways, as big as the international game. And that was someone who really loved rugby from a very young age, and loved my club rugby as well, and would sit and wait for those games in Wales to come on rugby special. But like the maybe unusually at the time, like the English club games as well, and knew what was, or would research or read about the sides in Ireland that were just these great names that one day I've ended up covering, and in Scotland too, mm-hmm. and pulling together the Isles of Britain and Ireland in the Lions will always make it special. But to see within those Isles the clubs develop to where they've developed too has been one of the great joys of this job. Mm-hmm. On, on, on the return to the subject of the Lions, I'm interested in your thoughts in terms of how special are the Lions, and, and I'm particularly interested in what you think the impact of shortening the tours in the future may be. They are very special, and I can assure you, just from a fan's point of view, if they did away, whoever they are, if they did away with the Lions, I would turn on rugby. I would not like it. <laughs> It's the best thing within the sport, as I say, to pull together four nations that just a matter of, it's a cliche, but it is so at the heart of why it's so good. Just a matter of months before this Lions tour, weeks, the Six Nations is happening, and everybody in that rugby way is kicking lumps out of each other. Shaking hands at the end, yes, but during the game, rivalries that could not be any more fierce. And then within weeks, coming together as a side, to take on one of the giants of the world game. It stands out there, not just within rugby, but also within sport in general, as one of the great things that we must never, ever lose. Now, in terms of the length of the tour, I'm not well qualified to talk about that. It's a little bit like the conversation we're having about the Six Nations within the game at the moment, and cutting it down from the seven weeks to the six. And I would hope that in the process of reaching that decision, and any future decision, by the way, on the Lions as well, that the people that need to be asked are the players. They just simply need to be asked. They don't have any axe to grind here. They just know what's possible. And if the players say, look, to get the very best Six Nations, we can't do it in that time frame. We'll have to be managed. We'll have to have games off. Listen to them. They're talking for future generations. They're not just talking for themselves. And they're talking for the care that must be taken of the modern player. And a game with the Lions. Look, if it's not working right on the back of these domestic finals, and it is such a big ass to think that they land on the Wednesday and... However, when you look at it, that some are going to have to be involved, even in bench terms, on that 
first weekend, I think, when you do the numbers, mm. it is really, really difficult. I, I'm worried about talking on a game so close to having got off the plane. How worried would I be if I was playing in the game? Well, everybody very worried if I was playing in the game. The Lions would have to be shelved. But the players themselves need to be listened to on these matters. And they will tell you what is and isn't possible. What I would be worried about as a Lions fan or a supporter of the game is if we lost the element of touring. To a certain extent, we've lost it with this one. There's no Invercargill, there's no New Plymouth. And I think that's a sadness. But it's also great that we're playing all the super rugby teams and aren't they in great form and those matches are going to be almost as good as the test matches so looking forward to every game now if that is truncated if that is cut to say a test series with maybe a couple of midweeks we're not talking about a tour we're talking about a series and i think there's an essential difference and the lions have always provided great joy to wherever they have gone, at whatever stage of their history, by touring properly, being part of the country for a decent length of time and getting around the country as best they can in the modern world. You touched on um, a couple of possible changes to, to the modern game in terms of the Six Nations condensed or the Lions condensed. In, in general, do you think the sport is in good shape today? I really do. I think the sport has never been in better shape. Just look at the competitions, look at the success of the last World Cup, look how it gathers and gathers with every time. Each World Cup we say it can't get any better. And there have been one or two, in inverted commas, disappointing World Cups. So even within that disappointment, we know there have been some great moments to save us. So let's not be too hard on the World Cups that haven't quite delivered. But we know which ones they are. But that's, I suppose, part of the growing pains of the sport and the fact that Also, not every game can be the greatest game that there has ever been. So there are going to be disappointments. In football, there are going to be nil-nils. And in in rugby, they're going to be the equivalent. So the World Cup, though, by and large, gets better and better and better. And that, of course, is the flagship for the game. But aside from all of that, Six Nations and how people still want it, still love it, still desire those tickets just like they used to desire them. The club game I've talked about, I think we're in a really, really good state and we can power on from here. Mm -hmm. The only proviso, the caveat to that is that we just have to remember the people who supply the entertainment, who create the game and make it what it is, are the players. And anything we do in terms of player management and improving that, and understanding injury, and understanding, obviously, hot topic at the moment, concussion. All of these issues have to be addressed with the utmost care and constantly be revised, looked at, developed in consultation with the players themselves because they will tell us what is required, what is needed. Mm -hmm. World Rugby has shown it's sort of willing to tweak the game, you know, as it's developed over the years. Is, Is there anything particularly about the mechanics of the game that you think just jar a little and could do with a little tweaking? Off the top of my head, the one thing that I don't like is the drop goal being worth three points. Mm-hmm. Very simple thing to change. Actually, it's gone a bit out of vogue, hasn't it? Although Kerry Lopez will say, no, it's absolutely in vogue. Speared <laughs> club on over the line in their semi-final. But the game itself will always be tweaked. There'll always be law changes. I like the complexity of the game. It's one of... 
its major assets. Mm. I love that combination of physical and mental, taking both to the limit. I love it when players are put under mental stress during the game to make key decisions when their bodies are on the line and feeling battered and bruised. They've taken them to the nth degree and they're still having to keep their minds sharp. As a spectator watching a sport, it is great to see and it's why we're all in awe of these players and and what they achieve and what they do. Mm -hmm. So I think in general, Graham, pretty happy with where the game's at as long as it just keeps looking at itself and tweaking and, and reflecting how it changes mm-hmm. now I'm, I'm wary I've kept you for such a long time Mars I really appreciate your, your, your input and obviously your, your memories just to wrap things up I'm just wondering is there, are there any key lessons you'd like to offer those sort of media professionals or hopeful media professionals looking to follow in your path first thing I'd say on that Graham is look at yourself in the mirror and ask if you can do it is it your skill set I suppose that's true of any job you do in life but I can only talk about the one that I've done broadcasting and you need to know in your heart of hearts whether you believe you can do it because there's no point doing it if you half do it because plenty will overtake you plenty will want it more and plenty will be better equipped to be able to do it but if the answer is yes then what I would say to young people out there considering this kind of career is back yourself Believe in yourself. Never, therefore, stop asking people for an in. Never take no for an answer. And people will help. People will remember how they started out. And reflecting the quality of the sports person that we cover, I'd like to think, and having got to know members of the media, written, radio, TV, you name it, social media, all the new stuff, big band of people, I can't think of anybody who wouldn't take time to help out other people trying to get into what we do. And the other thing to say is, if you are one of those people who likes your weekends, likes your social, likes your weddings, likes your christenings, your dinner parties, then do not consider a career in sports broadcasting or journalism because you'll be missing out on all of those. This will become your life. Now, I'm not saying I work every hour that God sends, but as soon as the rugby season starts, And for me, that is mid-August when I start the planning, going around the clubs, watching them train. There isn't a day that passes by until we come back off tour, end of June or July, when I haven't either worked on or thought about the sport in which I'm working in. And you have to commit yourself 100% to that lifestyle. It's a lifestyle choice, but it's a wonderful life. And if you'd have said to me when I was a young lad, five or six, playing in the garden, pretending I'm Gareth Edwards or Barry John, pretending I was down there at the Arms Park, sliding in the mud and reenacting those moments that one day I would get the chance to do what I'm doing, then I would have said I would be the luckiest man in the world. And I am. I'm the luckiest man in the world. Well, given those demands, Miles, that you mentioned, it makes me even more grateful that you'd spend spend an hour sharing some thoughts with us. So um, thanks again for, uh, for your time and best of luck for the end of the season and for this summer's tour with the Lions. Cheers, Graham. All the best. Thank you.